So those of you who asked me for it, Google Billy Collins forgetfulness, if you can remember that. <laughs> so as you, <clears throat> so as you um, may have felt over the past week how rich this practice is, how many different aspects and um, how broad the landscape is. And uh, it's true, you know, even um, uh, we have, especially in the Bay Area, this um, confluence of um, so many of the different lineages and practices of, of the Dharma, um, multiple opportunities um, that are available to us. And I just want to say that, you know, among the, um, these different streams of the Dharma that originated really with the Buddha's time, um, that there are so many congruences that, that you know, um, uh, that are really clear. The, the teachings of the Four Noble Truths and um, the Brahma Viharas and the Three Characteristics and the Eightfold Path. <laughs> And also, all of you, some of you have brought in those different lineages into your practice. Um, and we have also um, uh, referred and quoted, you know, the Mahayana Zen masters and um, the Tibetan lamas, uh, the teachings from the Vajrayana tradition. Um, and there are also differences. Um, I was starting a sitting group with one of the priests at the San Francisco Zen Center, and, and um, one of the primary teachings in Vipassana is the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, and so that was on the tip of my sort of suggestions to, to start the sitting group. And I found out that in, in the Zen tradition, you don't get to that teaching for 10 years. And so in a beginning class, it was actually very interesting to, to, to work with that. I bring this up because um, there are differences in our paths and this uh, towards, towards freedom, and this goes all the way back to the Buddha's time. So just as a reprise that some of you know, um, the story of the Buddha's own awakening was that he um, went into homelessness at the age of 29 for about six years searching for for a path to freedom. And, um, uh, and after a, a period of asceticism and different practices, he sat underneath the, uh, the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya with the determination not to get up uh, without achieving full awakening. And, and it is said that in the three watches of the night, he saw all the past lives that he had gone through purifying um, uh, his his awareness and experience, and, and in the second watch of the night, um, he saw the, the, the uh, coming into and passing away of all things, the, the conditions around karma. And uh, in the third watch of the night, he saw the cycle of dependent origination, the, the uh, cycle of both suffering and the end of suffering, and then he awoke. Which is very different 
than the stories of awakening of his primary disciples. So the three that, that come to mind that are most prominent in the Buddha's stories and scriptures is his um, uh, two main disciples, Sariputra and Moggallana, and his uh, main attendant, Ananda. So it is said that um, Saraput- and Sariputra and Moggallana were, were very close buddies. They had been practicing for 25 years before they encountered the Buddha. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that there was a little bit of, you know, sort of competitive rivalry sometimes, but, but always they were, they were best friends. And uh, Sariputra's story of awakening was not even in the meditative state. He was actually fanning the Buddha um, while the Buddha was offering a Dharma talk to Sariputra's family. And his mindfulness was so refined and present that through that Dharma talk he awoke in, you know, in the continuity of his mindfulness practice. Which is different than Moggallana, his best friend. And it's from Moggallana that I think I referred to it in one of the morning instructions that his main uh, hindrance was sloth and torpor, sleepiness. He constantly was falling asleep over and over again. And those, those classic instructions of um, standing up, sitting by the edge of the well, um, uh, opening your eyes to bring brightness, uh, quickening your walking pace, these were the original instructions that the Buddha offered Moggallana in his, um, in his guidance that has come down to us. Um, for all these thousands of years. And I love, of course, the story of Ananda's awakening because he had reached a certain level of his, his practice and, and was perfectly content just being the Buddha's attendant. And, um, and uh, he was a brilliant attendant because he um, um, facilitated, especially the contact between the Buddha and populations that were, um, uh, that had difficulty reaching the Buddha. And so he was instrumental in, in um, creating the women's, the, the, the order of nuns for the women's community. And, um, uh, and he also had a, I'm not exactly what you sure you call it, but a photographic mind. He, he had total recall of all the Buddhist discourses. And so when the Buddha um, passed away um, uh, out of this life plane, um, all of the awakened ones, the 500 awakened uh, arhats, uh, gathered together in the first council to coordinate the Buddha's teachings, to make sure that the teachings would be offered in a coordinated way. And you had to be enlightened to be part of this council, which Ananda wasn't. But how could you hold the council without the total recall of all the discourses? So the pressure was on. And so he waited to the last minute. So on the last night, he was, what was that effort that, that, that Anna was talking about? You know, he was like trying and trying and trying and trying. And, you know, the Buddha went through the first and second, third watches of the night. Well, he was already in the third watch of the night and there was nothing. So he decided, okay, I'm not going to the council. 
not for me. And uh, he let it go and he went to sleep. And as he was falling down into his bed, he let everything go. And he is the only person that's documented to have awakened outside the four sitting, the four meditation postures, <laughs> halfway between <laughs> sitting and lying down. So within, embedded in the archetypal stories of the Buddha are these different paths of awakening. Ajahn Fuan, who's one of the meditation masters in Thailand of the last century, said, for insights to arise, you have to use your own strategies. You can't use other people's strategies and expect to get the same results they did. This is the theme of this talk, is how do you make this practice your own? This is the invitation of those stories of the Buddha's lives and, the, and his disciples. We offer so many different forms and, and um, techniques and, and ways of, of strengthening this capacity for you to be aware. I think one of the messages that we try to reinforce over and over again is, is that the practice is not about sitting on your cushion. The practice is about awareness so that you can have that capacity to be aware when you actually, today, re-enter your daily lives. So that when you need that mindfulness, that capacity is, is alive for you. So we, we offer these different instructions around the breath, the body, the scans of the body, the the incredibly profound and important practice of Vedana, the noticing of unpleasant, pleasant, neutral, before our experience reacts to those um, feeling tones. The, the mindfulness of the formation of thoughts and the feelings, the emotional feelings, the practice of of noticing intention, that inception before activity or or, um, behavior. The practices of letting go and renunciation and the different forms that letting go can take place. Within the walking practice, you know, the different forms of the walking, whether you're counting your steps or whether you're um, noticing the lifting, moving, and placing, or whether simply noticing the felt sensation of the walk from the inside of your body. The metta phrases, the metta practice, the loving-kindness practice, the compassion practice, that may be about using the traditional phrases that you may repeat in your heart, Or it may be just simply invoking that energy that you you are in touch with. Maybe not always, but invoking it so that it can be, uh, again, like your awareness, with you when you need it. There are so many variations 
of how to put these ingredients together in order to make the recipe that actually works for you. And so I just want to point to something that at least is true for me, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that it's also true for you. That as soon as any of these invitations come into your um, uh, sense door of the ear, you're actually not following them exactly. You're actually, as soon as the invitations come, you're not actually following to the letter exactly what we're telling you to do. You're already filtering this practice through your experience. You're already, you're already looking at what makes, what makes it work for you in this moment and leaving the rest behind. Maybe for a, another time, maybe for another exploration. And so, you know, one of the things that I associate it with is um, how many of you play a musical instrument? So you know this aspect, there is a mechanical aspect of learning to play a musical instrument. Do you actually play the piano or the clarinet or the violin exactly like your instructor? Or as soon as you as soon as you make a sound, it's actually slightly different than how your teacher would do that. And I think we've referred to this mindfulness practice as an art form. So how do you play your meditation practice? And really this is not, you know, we encounter this in our lives quite a lot. You know, those of um, those of you who um, uh, have even hired professional consultants, you know, you can pay $25,000 or whatever it costs to create some kind of um, uh, assessment plan, but, you're, but you don't necessarily follow it exactly that it's given to you. You know, the whole purpose is to use all of this information and really explore, so how does it impact your life? And I think that, you know, one of the beauties of the way this, this, um, uh, uh, the way that this lineage of Vipassana has come into um, uh, this, our culture in the West, is that um, Spirit Rock and IMS have developed this uh, form of teaching in teams so that you can actually, you know, have different voices and, and the our different experiences um, actually create a broader landscape in which for you to enter and, um, and practice, to see the variations even in the styles of, of how the, the Dharma has landed for us. Even the Buddha, um, you know, the, the image can, can only point the way. So there's that image of the finger pointing to the moon, but it's not the experience of the moon itself. We each have to have our own experience of the moon. And so the teachings of the Buddha um, in, the, in the Pali Canon are often um, 
created around these similes. It's like this. It's like that. I went, there's a beautiful um, website called Access to Insight in which if any of you are interested in following up with some study around on the Buddha's teachings, it's a great uh, resource. And on Access to Insight, and that's not the whole Pali Canon, there are, three, there are over 330 similes, you know, practices like this, practices, um, uh, there's a simile of the arrow and the, and the bamboo and the burning oil and the, and so um, all of it is, is, is trying to create a picture, but we actually have to experience it ourselves. The Buddha did not do any enlightening. If he did, there would have been thousands of Buddhas in his time. So it's really up to us to actually live this practice. There's a a Zen phrase, um, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill the Buddha. If you meet the teacher on the road, kill the teacher. Which I don't actually recommend. (laughs) I hope. But there is, you know, the... Um, the, the metaphor behind that extreme statement is at some point in time you let go of the Buddha. At some co- point in time you let go of the teacher and really sink into what is your truth. The Buddha said to Ananda, it may be that you think, Ananda, the teacher's instruction has ended now that we have no teacher, meaning he was referring to his own passing. It should not be seen like this, Ananda, for what I have taught and explained to you as the teachings and the discipline will be at my passing your teacher. So even if, even if there is a teacher that you haven't killed, the teacher will also pass as everything. And so at that point, Where's your practice? There's a very famous uh, um, passage in the Kalama, Kalama Sutta. Do not depend upon what has been learned by repeated hearing, nor upon tradition, nor upon hearsay, nor upon scripture, nor upon assumption, nor upon theory, nor upon faulty reasoning, nor upon prejudice or inclination nor upon someone's seeming ability, nor upon the thought, this person is our teacher. These things lead to suffering. When you know for yourselves what is disapproved by the wise, and from your own experience and observations that these things lead to harm and ill, then abandon them. The things that lead to the end of suffering, when you know for yourselves that these things are good, blameless, and praised by the wise, from your own experience and observation, these things lead to benefit and happiness. Enter on and abide in them.
as you as you make it your own practice, I just also want to um, talk about the collective impact of, of that. Because historically it has had a huge, um, it has made a huge difference in the practice itself. So often it is said that in, in, in our, our culture it's, we're at an amazing time that all these lineages of Buddhism are converging on, on the West and we have all this opportunity, which is totally true. We have this panoply of teachings to, to experiment with. But it's not the only time that it's ever happened. It, happens, it has happened continuously in the Dharma's history. So as the, as the Dharma of the Buddha's time migrated from northeastern India into western India and central Asia, there was an incredible flourishing of multiple traditions existing at once, actually focused on a place that we now call Afghanistan. And as it moved into China through the northern Silk Route, because of cultures making the Dharma their own practice, it became Chan, which when it arrived in Japan became Zen. And as the influences of, of, of the Dharma in cultures of northern India and Mongolia converged on Tibet, what, what resulted from that fruit was Vajrayana. So the development of the lineages that we have today are cultures and communities making the Dharma their own. And the Buddha recognized this. This is in the Vinaya, which is the monastic code. The occasion was this, there were two monks and they were both of Brahmin stock and they had fine voices and a fine delivery. They asked the Blessed One, Lord, now the monks are of various names of various races, variously born, having gone forth from various clans. They spoil the word of the Blessed One by using their own language. Let us render the words of the Buddha into classical meter. Language is the way, I mean, we don't, at that time they didn't have languages that crossed cultures. So language actually defined culture. The Buddha, the Blessed One, rebuked them. I love it when he uses this phrase. <laughs> Misguided men. How can you say, let us render the words of the Buddha into classical meter? This will not rouse faith in the faithless or increase faith in the faithful. Rather, it will keep the faithless without faith and harm some of the faithful. Having rebuked them and given them a talk on the Dharma, he addressed the monks thus, Bhikkhus, the word of the Buddha is not to be rendered into classical meter. Whoever does so commits an offense of wrongdoing. I allow the words of the Buddha to be learnt in one's own language. How will your communities make the Dharma its own? 
really through your practice, through you. These events, these retreats, wherever you gather to practice is like the hub of a wheel. And as you return into your communities and your lives and your world, you are like the spokes radiating out. And you don't have to facilitate anything about the Dharma. But living your life transformed as it has been will automatically bring these teachings and the effect of these teachings into your communities. So I want to get a little bit more practical and, you know, as we go out into our worlds, just to talk about some things that would support that transition for you. And some of this will be quite detailed and mundane, but quite important. You know, our mindfulness can be quite broad about the context that we practice, but also needs to be quite focused on the details. So really the invitation is again to be aware of how open and how um, sensitized you've come to be in these last eight to nine days. And to take really care of yourself, compassionate care of yourself as you move out of this landscape. And so um, just, you know, as, as the concentration practice has guarded your sense doors, you know, sort of secluded um, and protected the mind, just um, try to create some protection as you go out into the world before you completely um, fully engage. Again, it's an incremental process. And I know that the, one of the, the, some of the most uh, challenging experiences happen immediately, like getting into the car <laughs> and noticing that, you know, you've been encouraged to do one thing, you know, when you're eating, just eat. When you're sitting, just sit. Well, when you're driving, <laughs> this, is, this is multitasking on a, on a higher level than you've been asked to do in the last week. So, um, and this reminds me, uh, unfortunately, that I need to say that the Bay Bridge is still closed. So you may want to just sink into the uh, reality that things will slow down whether you like it or not on the highway if you're going in that direction. Um, and if there are alternate routes to take, you know, other than the freeway. Um, and of course, driving too slow um, probably isn't that mindful either. So there's a, there's a, there's a middle way in which to approach this re-entry, at least on the highway. Uh, and really, to, you know, how do you integrate this? As we say, the practice is not just on the cushion, the practice is not just on retreat. 
How do you bring it into all of your experiences, into your workplace, into your domestic life, your family life, your relationships? One of the suggestions is um, to, um, to be careful about your relationships when you re-engage. That often, you know, uh, we want to share everything that we've done, or whatever that's been happening. But actually, your experience did not happen to the person that you're talking to. And it could be that they will just not understand it. And also, the more you actually verbalize the insights or the transformation that you've gone through, the more they become conceptual. So, see if it works for you to just guard against that. Just hold the experience. You can talk about the generalities. You can talk about the deer. You can talk about the, you know, the incredible uh, beauty of whatever piece of the experience you'd like. But I, but you know, the encouragement is not necessarily to go into the details. Um, there are huge teachings that are embedded already in your life. So, your family and your relationship as spiritual practice. Nothing is outside of your mindfulness practice. Um, there, uh, there have been some beautiful articles about um, washing the dishes as mindfulness practice. Um, I remember I, uh, my last full-time paycheck job was in um, the environment of San Francisco General Hospital, and it was quite a pressured environment. I had, I was seeing lots of clients and 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 needing to do lots of notes, and and um, you know how you you get so caught up in your work that you forget to go to the bathroom. You know, you for, until you really have to go to the bathroom, and it's like, what is that about that? you've lost, that I've lost that mindfulness to be present for the most basic physical um, care of my own body. And so, um, I began to try to integrate just small um, moments of mindfulness when I could. Um, I tried to always feel the computer when I was typing my clinical notes so that I wasn't lost in the work that I was doing, but that I had a sense of that there was a body doing it. And I would just take the opportunity when I did need to go to the restroom to, you, to do that as a walking meditation. So just, you know, wherever you can, it's like piecing the continuity of practice in the retreat. You weave um, moments that you can together. One of the suggestions is not to make any major decisions after your retreat is over. <laughs> Allow the retreat to settle 
and, um, and even though you may have been ruminating about the solution of a particular issue or problem, um, really to, to re-engage slowly and then um, see if those decisions that you've made are still relevant. It's like those pieces of paper that I was dropping, you know, some of them seem so compelling during the retreat. Um, but by the end of the retreat, I was left with only five or six. So, um, just an encouragement to, to do that. And again, to guard your activities a bit. I mean, it's a Saturday night and, you know, it's Halloween. <laughs> Thank you, Anna. <laughs> we know what happens in the Castro on Halloween. So, <laughs> anyway, I would suggest not necessarily going there. <laughs> and to continue your practice, you know, to look for those supports that are there to continue supporting this practice that um, you've so deeply strengthened while you've been here. So that may be connecting with classes or day-longs or sitting groups in your area. Um, Certainly Spirit Rock has a multitude of opportunity to do that. There's the East Bay Dharma Center, there's uh, East Bay Meditation Center, there's, there's, there's so many different places, but if you're from a geographic area that does not have that variety of experience. Think about starting a sitting group that could be a, a peer-led group or supported by a book study or as um, uh, I think Quilly was saying yesterday, Dharma Talks can be so easily accessed and downloaded from Dharma Seed these days. So you could have a, a virtual you know, sitting group with a Dharma talk. Whatever that can uh, support, we know that this, this aspect of Sangha and community is so important. And just again, inviting us periodically to feel our way into our highest intentions of practice. Sayada Upandita, who is one, uh, one of the main teachers of many of our teachers, and he's still alive. Um, um, uh, he lives in uh, Myanmar, Burma right now. He said, practicing mindfulness means building peaceful little worlds within each of those who practice. Without peace in our little worlds, crying out for peace in the big world with clenched fists and raised arms is something to think about. Right before he passed, the Buddha said, be a lamp unto yourself. And the more lamps that shine in this world, the more awake and free we are as individuals and communities. 
May we have that intention of creating that greater freedom for us all in this lifetime. So the teachers, the teachers um, would like to offer this practice of pavarana, which is the invitation into reconciliation. For any way that we have harmed you, knowingly or unknowingly, in thought, word, or deed, we ask for your forgiveness. Likewise, if there is anything that any of you have done to harm us, knowingly or unknowingly, in thought, word, or deed, we offer you forgiveness without condition. In a moment, We'll all stand up, and together we'll make a ritual of closing, which will be an offering of uh, the merit of our practice for the well-being of all beings everywhere. And over time, I've come more and more to appreciate this um, articulating of the dedication of merit. In a certain way, I I think when I first heard it, it sounded like merit got saved up, and when you offered it, if you didn't offer it, it hadn't been. But actually, I think every moment of our practice has been on behalf of all beings, and it couldn't be otherwise. But I think there is something additional in articulating the intentional purpose of our (coughs) practice for the well-being of all beings. And I especially like doing it as we close together in a circle so that we all look at each other and look at the people who actually sustained our practice when we were here, as we were here. Because each of you, as we walked around and ate together and stood in line together and washed dishes together, vacuumed halls together, or kept the silence next to each other, all sustained each other's practice. We are a mini-world. When we stand up and make that circle, I'd like to invite you to do that slowly and with intention, look around the circle. We are really like Upper Broadway. We are um, all ages, some of us less than 20, some of us more than 70, and everybody else in between. We are different genders, we are different colors. Our parents and our grandparents came from different places all over this globe. We share 
the human heart that has the potential of transforming itself to kindness. We have exterior differences. We share this remarkable human trait of really um, developing the perfections of the heart. The Pali word for those are divine abodes. The splendid and divine human capacity. So as you stand up in this room of familiar strangers, I'd like to invite you to take a moment to stand in a circle between two people that are familiar strangers to you. So not somebody that you came with, not somebody that you know. We'll locate ourselves among you. So I need two people that I didn't meet with this week who, uh, <laughs> who are my familiar strangers to come and hold my hands. So let's make a circle of Upper Broadway. I'm inclined to just stand here a long time and look at us. We look great. <laughs> you look around, look around, look around, look around. I love to think about the fact that each of us brings with us our ancestors, our parents, our grandparents, the whole heritage that we bring with us from whenever and wherever. And I like to think that we perhaps bring together today, as much as any time, the whole of the world. And so may the merit of our practice may the merit of our practice, our wishes for be granted and bestowed and spread amongst all the people of this whole world. May all beings everywhere be safe of all harm. May all beings everywhere feel content and at ease. May they be able to lie down in peace and wake up in peace and not be afraid for their families. May all beings everywhere have what they need to take care of their bodies, foods and medicines, whatever we have that can strengthen the lives of beings and make them comfortable for all of their natural life. May all beings be able to come home, all human beings be able to come home or end the day singing and clapping, 
praying, celebrating birthdays, welcoming new beings into the world, ushering beings out of the world. May they do that in the company of a family that loves them and a community that loves them and a world that loves them. May that be our wish for the whole world. I like very much to think that that's our merit, that wishing for the whole world. So if you can imagine that what I have just done is written a greeting card for the whole world, may you be well, world, and everyone in it. And in the way of uh, communal greeting cards, like a whole office signing a happy birthday card, May we as a whole community sign that be well card. Not only get well, but be well. Be well, world. And I'd like us to do it by signing the card, by saying our full name out loud and clear so everybody else hears it. And we have plenty of time. Don't rush so we can hear everybody's. Here we go. We're signing the card. Sylvia Shore Borstein. Gloria Gosnell. Nancy Cowan Weissman, Anna Douglas, Louise Reed Ritchie, Kay Borstill, Heather Rose Martha Kane.
I haven't yet found a totally satisfactory way of ending this ritual because I, <laughs> I am always loath to let go of people's hands at the end of this time, feeling a combination of awe and overwhelm and gratitude. Sometimes I think we should bow to each other. We can do that and still be holding hands. Let's bow. Sometimes I think we should shout hallelujah and raise our arms up, which we can still do holding hands. So hallelujah. <laughs> We're still holding hands. I think probably we can end that by giving a hug to the people on both sides of us. <laughs> and please drive carefully and take very good care of yourself. Thank you very much. I'm glad that we finally got to say something to each other. There is one more opportunity for mindful practice and service, which is that... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.